Well, good morning, church. Uh, as you can see, there's a lot of pinch hitting going on this morning. Um, a few weeks ago, Brett sent an email out to the elder board and explained that he and Adam had been given the opportunity to go away for a week with their wives to spend a little time relaxing, rejuvenating without their children. And his desire to not burden Brandon with the week-long preparation of the church operations and worship and preaching, he asked if any of the elders would volunteer to preach today. Um, as you can see, Brandon took a day off too. Um, I'm going to confess, though, that that email went largely unanswered by the elders until our following meeting, when I somewhat reluctantly volunteered to fill this role. I wasn't reluctant because I didn't think I could do this. I was reluctant because I never had. Several hours later, I was having a late lunch with my wife and daughter, during which I announced to them that I did, in fact, volunteer to preach today. The confused responses of, why you, and wait, what, are still echoing in my head. <laughs> After explaining this situation, um, the follow-up comments weren't really much more encouraging, though. I heard things like, I'm not sure I can be there when you preach. And I was nervous when you talked to the church about the finances last month. And that was something you knew about. Anyway, over the last few weeks, they've come around to the idea of me being up here today. And for this, I'm thankful. They've also encouraged me during my prep time, mostly by just allowing me the peace and quiet needed to hear what God had to say to me through his word. In keeping with our current pastoral series, I was charged with unpacking 1 Timothy 4, verses 9 and 10. So here we go. No guts, no glory. As we get started, I'd like to ask Seth Wyram to come up and read today's passage for us. If you're using the Black Bible, um, this passage is found on page 1052. And if you're physically able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Morning. Um, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Uh, for, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Thank you. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time together, Lord. We thank you for giving us the opportunity to open your words in the book of Timothy, um, to hear Paul's words to Timothy and to the people. Um, we thank you for um, our pastoral staff who does this on a weekly basis. Um, we thank you for Brandon, who's home recovering, and we just thank you, Lord, for your time together with us today. In Christ's name, amen. So there, you may be seated. Um, so there are a couple things um, that I can promise you today. Um, first of all is that we'll use this book um, to lead us today. Um, the second thing is that I'll get you to lunch on time, okay? Um, so last week, Brett titled his message, Focus. 1 Timothy 4.8 speaks of godliness as having value in all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. He urged us to eliminate useless distractions and focus on God's word. He told us to choose the right goal, one of godliness, because it has eternal value, not just temporal value. And he reminded us that godliness would take effort and focus to achieve. Godliness isn't cheap. It will cost us something. Time, money, possessions, friends, jobs, and for some, maybe even their earthly life. The Apostle Paul jumps into verse 9 saying, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. 
Most biblical scholars believe he's referring back to verse 8, reiterating that godliness has value. It was not enough for Paul to simply say this once. He had to reinforce it. Godliness has value and is worth pursuing. This is the third trustworthy saying in this letter to Timothy. But I think in order to understand the premium Paul places on this idea, we really need to take a look back at the first two trustworthy sayings that he gave to Timothy. The first one is found in chapter 1, verse 15. It reads, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus isn't just some guy that was born and lived and died with little consequence. This is the cornerstone of our faith, that I am a sinner, that we are all sinners, and that we need a savior. Romans 3.23 tells us that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 5.8 states that God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, came down from heaven, lived a perfect life, and was crucified in payment for my sins, for our sins, so that we may have an eternal life in heaven. This is no small trustworthy saying. The second trustworthy saying is found in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. We will all stand before God one day and answer for the things we have done. In Paul's second letter to Corinthians, he writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. But overseers have a higher calling, a greater responsibility. We have already reviewed the high-level criteria God has set for the overseers. In 1 Timothy 4, 13 and 16, Paul admonishes Timothy to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Overseers will not only answer for themselves. They will also have to answer regarding how they shepherded the flock that was trusted to them. Answering how you cared for yourself and how you conducted yourself can be relatively simple. Answering how you cared for another person or for how another person conducted themselves is a far greater challenge. Again, this is no small trustworthy saying. This third trustworthy saying carries this same weight. Godliness is something to strive for. We must work at it. But what is godliness? How do we know if we're there or even on the right track? David Jeremiah defined godliness as living a fruitful, obedient Christian life. I found this and I like the definition because it requires several things. First, we must actually be Christians. Apart from a personal relationship with God through his salvation, it's pretty tough to be godly. Second, we must be obedient to God's word. This means we must know God's word. We must learn it, study it, and understand it. It takes time and effort, and as I found over the past couple weeks, even more time um, to really understand it. 
finally, we must be fruitful. The relationship we have with God and with the knowledge of his word must lead us to action. James 1.22 reads, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. When we put our faith and knowledge into action, the godliness we show will be proof of our faith to the unbeliever and an example to other believers to see and to follow. So Paul writes that we are to labor and strive towards godliness. In verse 10 of today's passage, he explains why. Because as Christians, we have put our faith in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. We work to be godly because we have already trusted in God. We believe that his ways are the right ways. They may not always be the easy ways or the popular ways, but they are always the right ways. We all know that the Christian walk does not generally conform to societal norms, but we follow this path because we know that our hope is set not in ourselves or in our temporal world, nor in some random philosophy of life or some non-existent God, but in Jesus Christ, who has paid for our sins on the cross and secured an eternal place for us in heaven. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14 speak of the wide and narrow roads. We walk the narrow road because we have been led down this path by God himself. We avoid the wide road taken by many because it leads to destruction and a life separated from God for eternity. We can also take comfort in knowing that if we start to stray from this narrow path and get lost, God will come searching for us. In Matthew 18, 12 to 14, Jesus tells the story of the pebble of the lost sheep. He says, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go back or go to look for the one that has wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth. He is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. God loves that we are in his flock. He loves that we have put our faith in him. He wants to bless each and every one of us. But if one of us should start to stray, he will come after us, and he'll find us, and he'll work to shepherd us back to the flock. He will shepherd us towards godliness because we have believed. The last part of this verse speaks to who the living God is. He is the Savior of all men, and especially for those who believe. The Savior of all men is clarified by Paul in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, when he states that God, our Savior, wants all men to be saved and to come to a full knowledge of the truth. God has made a way for all people to be saved. Jesus says in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Read that again. Whoever believes. There's no limit to that statement. No one is excluded. In a world where we battle about groups of people being included or excluded based on some worldly criteria, God has opened the door to a group that literally everyone could belong to. The final words of verse 10 are made clearer when Jesus continues in John chapter 3. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. God has made provisions for all to be saved. He is the Savior of those who believe because they have availed themselves of his provision. 
More simply stated, we can say that God is a potential savior of all men, but is the actual savior of those who believe in him. So what are we to do? Um, first and foremost, believe. We've preached this time and time again from this stage. If you've not yet accepted Jesus' Jesus's gift of salvation through his shed blood, you cannot move forward in your walk towards godliness. It takes guts to walk away from the unrepentant life you have known and be comfortable in order to follow Jesus. But walk away you must if you hope to have an eternal place in God's kingdom. If you have not accepted God's gift of salvation, make today your day. If you are truly ready to take the step, all you need is a simple prayer of faith. And you can pray with me right now if you wish. Lord, I am a sinner and I need salvation. I know you are the son of the living God and I know that your death on the cross paid the price for my sins. I believe in your saving grace and I give my life to you. Now show me your ways so that I can grow closer and closer to you. Amen. If you just prayed those words for the first time, we want you to know this. We want to know this. We want to celebrate with you. You can come find me or any of the elders after the service. We can help you with your next steps. The next thing we have to do is labor and strive. As I've said, it takes work to be godly. I encourage you to, take a, to block out a time each day or each week to read and study God's word. The Bible is a blueprint for living a godly life. The more time we spend in God's word, the more familiar it will become and the easier it will be to know how to live. We cannot be good doctors, nurses, lawyers, teachers, accountants, construction managers, bus drivers, fill in the blank with any profession. We can't be good at it without continually studying and learning new things about our chosen profession. Being a follower of Jesus is no different. How can we possibly grow stronger in our faith without studying God's word? Not a single person in this room knows all there is to know about the Bible, no matter how seasoned a Christian you may be. So get in the book God has given us and learn about your faith. Learn what it takes to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But remember, I've already said it, um, was not enough to simply know the word. We must act on it as well. We must yearn to live that godly life. When we are passionate about something, we strive for it. We may need to turn away from bad habits which pull us from God. We may need to change who we hang out with because they pull us away from God. We may need to change our forms of entertainment because they pull us away from God. I may need to give up my Saturday morning tea time so I can read God's word and follow God. We may need to go on a spring break mission trip instead of yet another boring week sitting on the beach for spring break. It takes guts to follow God's ways when the world is feeding us so many lies about what is right and wrong, what is good for you and not good for you. But God's ways are always right and they do not change. They are written in this book for all to know. Learn them, do them well. And finally, reap what you sow. When we learn about God and follow his ways, God is faithful to reward us. We may not always see rewards on earth, but they will come. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The glory of an eternal life is our ultimate reward. 
no matter the trials we face here on earth. And the trials will come. If you've been alive and breathing on this earth for more than three days, you already know this. Life in general is not easy. Living a Christian life is even more challenging, even more so around the world. But Paul writes in Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Even in his suffering, he knew what was covering. And even in our suffering, we too can know what's coming. What's coming is a full life of peace and glory up in heaven in the arms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, it takes guts to leave our former life and to follow and to live for Jesus. But the glory promised to us through his grace is immeasurable. So there you have it. No guts, no glory. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, um, you've given us a way um, to be closer to you, to know you through your word, Lord. You've given us a way to salvation um, through the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Keep us focused on you. Keep us yearning for you. And keep us striving for you. You've promised to all believers a glorious life in heaven to those who believe. If those who have not believed yet today find their way to you, Lord, please let us know about that. Please let us help them come closer and closer to you. And keep us on the narrow path, Lord, and come find us when we stray. Because in our humanness, we will stray. And we need you to bring us back. In your name we pray these things. In Christ's name, amen.